Misinformation and misconceptions are both really important topics when we're talking about science literacy. And if you're an open-minded person who is respectful of all and open to different belief systems and stuff, that can be a good thing, but it also could harm if the opposite is true. They're worried about teaching evolution. How do you sort of I don't want to say balance everyone's views being equal because some students might be bringing in information that's not correct or not scientifically literate. Today we're going to be talking about misinformation and misconceptions around scientific information and we have some guests on the show with us today and I'll let you introduce yourselves. Um, Ellen, why don't we start with you? Sure. Thanks so much for having me today. Uh, I'm Ellen Watson. I'm an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Brandon University, and my area of expertise is science education. Hi, I'm Amy Lee. I'm a middle years science teacher in Manitoba, and I've got a lot of science background over the last five years, as well as a degree in science. So that's my perspective. Hey everyone. I'm Michelle Lamb. I'm the co-host of the podcast and the director of BU Cares. So Ellen, maybe you would begin and just talk to us about um, the topic. And I think you probably brought the topic to us. Tell us a little bit about why it's interesting to you and um, maybe just give us some parameters for what the discussion will be like. Yeah, so the two um, ideas that we're talking about today are misconceptions and misinformation, and they're really, really tied together. Misconceptions can be viewed as a misunderstanding uh, or an alternative, alternative understanding about a science process and why it happens. It often happens because kids see things out in the world and interpret them as happening a certain way. So for example, if you dropped a piece of paper, it falls very slowly. If you drop a bucket, it falls very fast. So sometimes students misinterpret that to mean that things fall at different rates, and that'd be a misconception. Misinformation, on the other hand, is when you're getting information, but um, misinterpreting it. You're not really reading it properly. It's going through a different type of beliefs filter, and um, that can get passed forward as something called disinformation when you're when you're purposefully misleading people with information does that give a bit of clarity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that misinformation and misconceptions are both really important topics when we're talking about science literacy which is what science teachers are trying to do so we teach students how to think like scientists and read the world with science at, you know, starting in kindergarten. And we hope that they can transfer that to when they're adults. Okay, so um, the first question is, does what you believe as a teacher impact your teaching? And is that good or bad? I could answer part of that because I'm in the class, like I'm currently a teacher in the classroom. And I would say, yes, like your own beliefs and your own stance absolutely, um, absolutely influences your teaching. And I think that you have to be careful with that. And if you're an open-minded person who 
is respectful of all and open to different belief systems and stuff, that can be a good thing, but it also could harm if the opposite is true. Um, so just always being aware of where your perspective is coming from and that other kids in your classroom might be getting their information from other places. Um, doesn't make their information any less important, um, but you have to be aware of that. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Um, you know, teachers bring their own beliefs to a subject. They bring their own beliefs to how we teach things. And I think what's really interesting to me in teaching people who want to be science teachers is that there's often this misconception that everybody thinks the same way in science. And um, when you start to challenge that, some people can really, you know, be a little bit surprised. And um, the way that we think about science is going to change what our classroom looks like, like Amy said whatever we believe is going to influence our teaching. Are you talking about beliefs like, um, like evolution or vaccines? You know, are you thinking beliefs like that? Or are, are there other beliefs that you are thinking more about how science works and more of the process beliefs that you were talking about earlier, Ellen? When I'm thinking about beliefs and teachers' beliefs, I'm thinking about their epistemic beliefs specifically. So being... What are their beliefs about knowledge in science or what science knowledge looks like? So for example, you know, is science knowledge discovered or invented? Depending on how you think about that, your classroom is gonna look differently. Uh, is science not, does it change or is it always the same? And depending on how you think about that, your class is gonna look differently as well. But Certainly your beliefs on other subjects, you know, religious beliefs, uh, worldviews are also going to influence your classroom as well. So when you're going back to that idea of misinformation or disinformation that students might be reading online or something like that, and Amy, you said earlier that students are all bringing their own information and beliefs into the classroom, how do you sort of I don't want to say balance everyone's views being equal because some students might be bringing in information that's not correct or not scientifically literate um, or, or factual. So how do you handle that as a teacher? <laughs> that's uh, a big question. Sorry. Yeah, it's a, that is a big question. And I feel like each year I maybe handle it a little bit better. And then sometimes, you know, there's situations arise where I don't handle it as well, but um, I, there is always the curriculum to fall back on. Um, so we can always fall back on the fact that we are teaching a certain curriculum here in Manitoba and it teaches, for example, evolution. So that is a theory we're going to teach, but it doesn't mean you can't have a discussion in your classroom about other, um, other, you know, um, other things versus evolution. It just means that we'll also make sure we get through that evolution talk. I think in any classroom, whether it be science or any um, subject, you have to have an open dialogue with your students, but it is okay sometimes to disagree with your student or to make sure that your view is known over another person's um you know I, I that's tough too though like when you get vaccines for example were a really tough thing this year to have conversations about without giving your own opinion um and having the other kid's opinion be different than yours it's a tough thing to like a tough line to walk but you do have to have those open conversations and fall back on the curriculum at the end of the day Talk to us about how 
the curriculum helps support you to talk about the vaccines? For that one, I'm going to fall more on the government orders that we're giving okay. out to mental education more than curriculum. Okay. Yeah. I, I really appreciate what you said, Amy, because what I'm hearing from pre-service teachers is, you know, they're worried about teaching evolution, that they're going to go out and they're going to come up against somebody who, you know, does a creationist uh, comes into their room and just does not want their student and they're asking questions about what to do. And I can speak to that because I've seen it, but I was a physics teacher, so I never had to teach evolution. So I, you know, when students are coming to your class, are they bringing these, these uh, opinions that can be really flared? Is that something you're experiencing right now? I think that's the one that I can think of that stands out the most. But in my experiences, kids have been open to both conversations. It's not the first time they're hearing about it. Generally, in the populations they're taught, um, it's not the first time from either. Whether you're talking about creationism or evolution, usually kids have an idea that there are certain religions and that there's also this idea that um, humans have evolved over time. So it's I'm not normally starting from a bare minimum in the places I've taught. That might be different depending on your division and your city, et cetera. Yeah, I can respect that. Do you have any thoughts, Ellen, on that kind of idea of students coming in with many different views and many different sources of information and wanting to both honor the information they're bringing and balancing that with mm -hmm. the scientific beliefs that you hold? Do I have any thoughts on that, Michelle? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, so I think, I think that one of the reasons we're starting to see these debates about information when experts and scientists have come out and said this is the way things are is because we're starting to see a decline in uh, trusting of experts' opinions. And this all started with um, the anti-polio movement from the 1980s. So there was a group of kids in, I believe it was the 60s, who accidentally re received live polio vaccine. And this caused a big issue. There was a documentary created in the 80s and the documentary featured one or two doctors who were very controversial at the time and parents of the children who received these vaccines. So from that point on, we started to see a shift of listening to people, friends, family that we, we know and that we trust, celebrities even, over experts. And I think that that's starting to get more and more magnified. Can I add to that? Yeah. I just, I also see an increase in social media affecting that. So just now everybody has their own platform and they can, everybody can spread their information as far as they want. So I do believe that that has affected the way um, students and just adults in my life and stuff view the world and understand science and understand worldview. Yeah, absolutely. And on top of that, we've got confirmation bias. You know, my TikTok looks very different than somebody else's TikTok because of what I like and what I listen to. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the schools right now. I'm wondering how those conversations are happening, if they're happening at all. 
not to put you on the spot, Amy. <laughs> well, personally, like I, I think a lot of middle years teachers, uh, a, a big theme that we teach, whether it be in a technology class or a science class, social studies, ELA, is how to evaluate sources. So where, where are you getting your information from and understanding that that information is coming from somebody who has a purpose, whether that purpose to, to be to inform or to try and trick you or to get you to click, whatever it is, um, information is coming from a purpose and we try to teach kids, how can I evaluate the source and decide if it is trustworthy? So that sort of leads into that next question, right? About what kinds of things should teachers focus on to prepare scientifically literate students and students that are ready to meet misinformation and misconceptions and um, address those in their world. How do, how do teachers do that? Like that's what you just said, I think is one example, right? Um, how else do you prepare them? To yeah, so I can give you a couple of examples I've used in my classroom. Um, uh, I found a great book from my mom who's a librarian called Sad, The Sad Little Fact. And it's, you might've heard of it. It's a great, um, a great picture book that's targeted towards older kids. And it's just this, tells a story of these little facts that are not actually facts because somebody, just because somebody's saying them doesn't make them facts. This is a terrible explanation, but essentially it's a really nice pictured um, narrative of what can happen when I say something's a fact, even though other people don't think it's a fact and we have nothing to back that up. So it creates a lot of discussion. And then generally um, in, in lots of Miller's classrooms, I've seen things like fact versus fiction or like trustworthy versus untrustworthy, um, just providing a lot of different website examples like the tree octopus website um, that makes you think there's actually a species called the tree octopus. And the more information you get and the more research you do, you realize, oh, this is somebody just made this tree octopus up. It's not necessarily a fact because somebody said it's a fact. Those are some examples from my room. The Sad Little Fact is a fantastic book. Love it. And I love how the authority, you know, they have these authorities coming out that are making fake facts. But I think it really highlights the issue around that word, fact. You know, as soon as somebody calls it a fact, does that actually make it a fact or is it opinion? And in science, you know, we fall back on evidence. What evidence is there? And I think that that is part of the issue is, you know, people are, we've got confirmation bias going on, we've got people who are going out and looking for, for evidence, but not necessarily knowing how to read that evidence properly. So what was, we, oh, go ahead, please. Okay, well, I was just going to say also, like playing into that, we do have um, we're so used to getting quick information now, and I know students are as well. Um, even, even in their writing, I can see how they shorten words that shouldn't be shortened, like because, because, to C-U-Z. Um, I do think that people get hung up on the, the byline or the headline of the article now and don't read past that. So we, there's also a conversation around how do we get people to read past the byline? Because sometimes information is spread just by those headlines and you you read into it and it's not actually what you think the article's about. Yeah, or we have that disinformation piece where somebody puts out this headline saying, a doctor said this, but you know, it's it's a doctor of of something that's not related to science. You know, it's some 
doctor, not a medical doctor. I'm trying to think of a ridiculous space for them to live in, but you know, it's a doctor of comic books. Like, um, so we have these, these credibility issues and then it's hard to interpret what is credible and what's not credible because you've got that disinformation piece and people purposely misleading others. In the recent past, like with the pandemic especially, I've become really aware of the politicization of science. And how does that play into this topic? Because that changes the way that we think as well, right? Like I, I tend to listen to the people that I agree with or the people that influence me. And I guess with kids, how do we, how do we help them to see that sometimes um, the misinformation that we get is political? Yeah, I think we, you know, part of teaching scientifically literate students is teaching that buzzword critical thinkers, but teaching them to be able to weigh opinions because not all opinions have the same sources of evidence or the same amount of evidence supporting them. Yeah, and it comes, I agree with you, Ellen, and it comes back to, again, helping kids understand where is this information coming from? What is the purpose of this information based on who's giving it? And I, I love that those are lessons being taught out and I really hope that it helps. But now we've got this adult, you know, this, this group of adults that I'm wondering if that education was, you know, was it emphasized for them? Like, it wasn't really well, emphasized was, for me when I was a kid. That was my question too. Like the, the disinformation isn't, you know, those skills of reading critically, um, those aren't just needing to be targeted to K to 12 students. And so I, I know there's, some work being done in the settlement sector to do that kind of professional development with immigrants and refugees and people who don't have English or French as their first language. And so some of that work is being done in multilingual spaces, which is encouraging and good, I think. But I feel like just in general, like the general public also needs this knowledge. And so I wonder about what kinds of things might be done in those spaces. Do you have any thoughts around that? No, just nods. <laughs> yes, I, we need it, but we don't know what's happening in that area. We do need it, but I, I don't even know where to start with that, Michelle, because I think part of the issue is that this information, you know, about how to read information would still be coming from a very specific person, purpose and a group of people. And I don't know that you could reach, you know, both sides of the very dividing argument about the pandemic and the mandates right now. I don't know that both sides would, en would engage with that material the same way. Well, even some of the language we're using here, like, I feel like this is very much focused on scientific literacy and we're viewing that a certain way. Um, and we have a particular audience maybe in mind. So it does make me think that, you know, most of the principles of beginning with empathy and seeking to understand and it needs to have this kind of relational component I think 
Yeah, absolutely. I see many people getting very frustrated with their friends or colleagues and what they're posting on their social media. And, you know, I don't agree with you. And why would you post that? And as frustrating as that can be, I think the conversation can be worthwhile because from my perspective, it's forcing people to use evidence when they converse, as opposed to just sharing an opinion. You need to have something, everybody's looking for something to support it. So to bring it kind of back into the classroom, if we were to look at early years, middle years, senior years, is there a difference in how this topic is focused on in schools? I think like any subject or important piece, it has to be start fairly young. Um, you can start things like fact versus fiction or opinion versus fact um, at, a, at a young age. Like kids are using social media before they're legally even allowed to use it. I mean, I have, I know grade four students and three students who have their own phone. Um, so the earlier we teach it, the better. But I do think you just get more into detail and you evaluate more pressing sources as you get older. So kids in high school might be evaluating political party information. Um, whereas kids in middle years are just starting to learn what those political parties are and you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they're gonna look different, but you, you can build that learning up. So in, in K through four, you know, there's some fantastic nature of science activities out there. One that I love is a bunch of dinosaur bones and they have to build what dinosaur they think it is. And you give them a few bones to start and then you give them a few more and that it really teaches that uncertainty and, and how as we get more information, things might change. Um, and, and students need to come up with an argument and it really drives them crazy because there's no correct answer. But, <laughs> but I, I think that that's part of what's frustrating as well for the general public is, you know, we keep getting new information. And so what's being recommended changes based on that. And those of us who are versed in science, yeah, that, that's just what happens. But if you don't know that, then um, I could see why that might be an issue. So I think that teaching this whole uncertainty and as we get more information, things change is a really important thing to include in schools. I like that. I can almost connect that to um, variables in a science experiment. There's, uh, when you're teaching the scientific process, uh, it's, you talk a lot about independent and dependent variables and how there's things that you can control, but things that are controlled by something else, right? So uh, for, for listeners, you know, you're setting up a race, let's say, to see who is the fastest, what's the fa what are the fastest shoes? Well, if you set up the race and one day somebody runs it against the wind and the next day somebody runs it on a calm day, that's going to affect your results. So I think of what you said as like understanding that different parts can come into play throughout time. That reminds me of the scientific process. So if we're teaching the scientific process and have kids help kids understand that things can change, even though it's a rigid process, things can still change in it. That might help us later on in life understand that, okay, things change throughout our lives as well. That's I think that makes point. a lot of sense. Yep. Any final thoughts, Amy? No, I'd really like to get my hands on that dinosaur bone experiment you're talking about because I think grade eights would love that too. Yeah. Talk and, yeah. yeah, we can we can put any of the resources like the sad little fact and any things that you've mentioned. We'll just link it underneath so that people can hear can access it. 
So I want to say thank you very much for both of you being here and being part of this conversation. It's been really interesting and I think very timely. So thank you for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us. And I hope you also had a good conversation and are coming away with some good ideas. Thanks so much. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Leaning In and Speaking Out, the Research Connection podcast. For more episodes or to learn more about the BU Cares Research Centre, please visit our website at brandonu.ca forward slash BU cares, or you can come find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.